Please stand as you are able for the reading of today's gospel lesson from the book of Mark, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many gathered around, and there was no longer room for them, not even in front of the door. And as he was speaking the word to them, then some people came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this fellow speak in this way? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? At once, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves, and he said to them, Why do you raise such questions in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Stand up and take up your mat and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of God has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, stand up, take your mat, and go to your home. And he stood up and immediately took the mat and went out before all of them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you, Don, for reading our lesson uh, this morning. Uh, Those of you who know Don and Stephanie may know that uh, Don is completing his seminary work in the next year or so and has been tapped uh, by our Tennessee Annual Conference to begin his pastoral ministry in Columbia, Tennessee. I believe it's St. Luke's. Is that right? Methodist Church. And next Sunday will be his first Sunday to preach in his new parish. And so we wish them well and we send them with God's blessing and God's spirit, and we're so thankful for your ministry, uh, Don, and look forward to hearing from you about it. Well, uh, it is so good to be home. Uh, We got back Friday night just in time for the Vandy Louisville game, uh, anchor down, and aren't we proud of the Commodores uh, for Monday night as they will begin to win the World Series against Michigan, and we look forward to that. Uh, VBS is happening this week. Vacation Bible School is starting, and that means prayers for Megan T. Garden, Ellen Garrett, and about 400 kids who will be joining us during the week, and we look forward to that. Um, I have a small case of jet lag this morning, so I want to make a suggestion. Uh, If I happen to go to sleep while I'm preaching, if you will just not disturb me and turn out the lights. I'll be grateful to you. And if I notice you're doing the same, I'll try to be as courteous to you as you are to me. So we're concluding this series. It's hard to believe it seems to me we just started the first of May on neighbors. As we've talked about, the simplest form of evangelism, the simplest form of witnessing is simply loving your neighbor as yourself. And we've talked about the great commandment where Jesus was asked, what's the essence of it all? And he gave a simple answer, love God with all that you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. This morning, we come to the last 
text that we're going to think about in this series from Mark 2. You know this story. It's a familiar story to many of a man with a disability that left him incapacitated, a man who was paralyzed, immobile. However, his life began to change simply because he had some neighbors who loved him, who cared so deeply for him, and their concern changed his life. The story begins in a place called Capernaum, house of Nahum, it means. A chapter earlier, Jesus had made the move from Nazareth, his hometown, which is about 20 miles and 20 years behind Capernaum. Actually, the truth, if you know it, is Jesus was run out of Nazareth by his own kinsmen after he preached his first sermon. Capernaum was a strategic place for ministry. Some of us visited there three months ago when we went to Israel and up north to Galilee. It was a fishing village on the northwestern shore of the Galilean lake just off what's called the Via Ignatia, that is the Roman road. If you know your Roman history, I don't have to tell you the Romans were known for building roads. In fact, 250,000 miles of highway they constructed, connecting east to west. Thus, the expression that maybe you've heard, all roads lead to Rome, so it was. Sometimes when I'm traveling on 440, I think we could use some Romans in Nashville, don't you? So in Capernaum, in this strategic location to begin the gospel movement, Jesus goes down to the seaside and gets to know a few fishermen. And he gets to know them so well that one day he pops the question and chooses four of them to be disciples. Two sets of brothers, Simon Peter and his brother Andrew, James and John, sons of Zebedee, sons of thunder, they're called. And Jesus chose to bunk with Peter in Capernaum. In fact, in the previous chapter, we learned that while Jesus was living with Peter and his family, that he actually healed Peter's mother-in-law, who was sick in bed with a fever. And so Jesus, who never had his own place in Capernaum, bunked with Peter, and Peter's home became the headquarters for the early gospel movement, the home office for the good news. Now, you know that Jesus was attracting a lot of interest. There was a lot of press surrounding Jesus to the point that he often needed some space. He needed, he needed some rest outside the city limits. He needed some vacation time. And so when chapter 2 begins, he has just returned from having solitude in the country with God. He's just come back to Capernaum, and the word gets out. The word gets out that he's back, and it's standing room only in Peter's place. And verse 2 that Don read for us says that Jesus was speaking the word to them. In other words, he was preaching. He was teaching. In chapter 1, verse 15 of Mark, there is the premise of his preaching. The time has come, the kingdom is near, repent, turn, and believe the good news. And here's where the story gets interesting. Verse 3 says, now some people came bringing a lame man that was carried by four neighbors. 
four friends on a pallet. Now, the text doesn't say this. This is the Revised Chapel version, but I think it was the man's small group. It was a men's group that probably met on Wednesday for Bible study and prayer. He came every week, but then it happened. Tragedy happened. There was an accident. Maybe it was an injury. Perhaps it was an illness. And suddenly, this man's attendance became rather sporadic, and later on, he dropped out altogether. But these four men in his small group stuck by him. They wouldn't give up on him. They continued to pray for him. They stuck close to his family. They visited him. The doctors had done all they could do. They said he's a hopeless case, but he had four neighbors that had his back. These guys had heard of the Nazarene. They had heard about his preaching, and they'd heard that he had healing in his hands. And so together they hatched out a little plan. They would bring him to Jesus. By the way, this is what disciples do, isn't it? They find ways to bring others to Jesus. Or sometimes they find ways to bring Jesus to others. And that's what they did. But there's a dilemma at this point in the story because when they get to Peter's place, it's, it's slam-packed. In fact, the street, the driveway outside, it's, it's like rush hour. I mean, it's camel to camel at Peter's house. And yet these guys had not come all this way to turn back. In the first century, if you had seen a house, this is what happened. If you'd seen a house, in the rear of the house was a staircase that would lead up to the roof. And sometimes on hot summer nights, families that were so overheated would climb up on the roof and they'd sleep just watching the stars. And so they climbed up to the roof, balancing themselves on the wooden slats, and they cut a hole in the ceiling, in the roof, and they lowered this man, their friend, to Jesus. Now, I can just imagine being in the crowd where all of a sudden people are dodging sheetrock. All of a sudden, dried bits of mud and thatch are falling like rain. The trustees would have had a heart attack, of course. And I can imagine Peter thinking, well, I've already given up my nets, and now there goes my house. And the only thing I get out of it is he heals my mother-in-law. And then verse 5 is key. Now, when Jesus saw their faith, he acted. Whose faith? The paralytic? No. Whether he had faith or not, we don't know. It's not in the text. It's not mentioned there. But the pronoun is not singular. It's plural. When Jesus saw their faith, it changed everything. These neighbors made a way where there was no way. These friends refused to allow any obstacle to keep them from getting their neighbor to Jesus. You ever had a neighbor like that? You ever been a neighbor like that? It's amazing what neighbors will sometimes do for love's sake. They broke the ceiling. They raised the roof. And they got him to Jesus. Now, one of the things that this passage to me demonstrates 
is the absolute necessity of koinonia. It's a wonderful word. It means community. The absolute necessity of having a faith family. When we baptized this boy today, we didn't baptize him as an individual, as a solo act. We, we initiated him into a community, and then we made a promise to God that we would raise him in a family where he would understand who and whose he is. It's about fellowship. It's fascinating to me that after Pentecost, and now we're in the third week of Pentecost, after the wind and fire, after Peter's sermon, after all that drama, Acts 2.42 defines the discipline of the early church. What did they do? And they dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to prayer, and to fellowship. That's not a luxury item. It's an essential part of our spiritual formation. Maybe this is why Hebrews 19 verse 25 says, don't stop meeting together with other believers as some have gotten in the habit of doing. Instead, encourage one another, especially as you see the day, the day, the end time drawing near. I've been reading a book by David Brooks. I think it's an important book for the 21st century. It's called The Second Mountain. In the book, David Brooks mentions another book by Johann Hare called Lost Connections. In that book, Hare argues that many of our mental health issues are often not just about neurology, they are connected to the absence of community. Says Hare in his book, and I quote, protracted loneliness causes you to shut down socially and to be more suspicious of any social contact. Indeed, you become hyper-vigilant. You start to be more likely to take offense where none was intended and to be afraid of strangers. In fact, says Hari, you become afraid of the very thing you need the most. You become paralyzed and polarized. I think maybe that this is why Mike Davis, who is one of our laymen, and Doris Jones are now training volunteers to be paired with home-centered members and senior care facilities in order just to be with them, to share fellowship, to share communion, the bread and the cup and encouragement. In fact, I'm told that this has become so important to one home-centered couple that they now prepare their own table as an altar for communion before Mike and Doris ever arrive. That's a relationship that will change, will make the difference. Shelby Slowey has been helping our staff here form what we're calling neighborhood walking groups so that we might know and befriend our geographical neighbors, local business folks, restaurants, near our campus that are often the most protected from the witness of the church so that God might make possible a deeper witness, a deeper connection in a world of lost connections. She's raising the roof. She's breaking the ceiling. I think this is what missional discipleship really is all about. 
to which all of us are called. It's what disciples do. It's not what we ought to do. It's what we do. I have to tell you how touched and grateful we were last week, Mark Graham, Robert Reynolds, and I, to represent you in Beirut, Lebanon, partnering with an organization there, the Lebanese Society of Educational and Social Development, which is assisting churches in difficult places where Christians are being persecuted in the relief effort. They're ministering to refugees who have been exiled by the Syrian war. Did you know that in Lebanon, there are four million citizens and there are two million refugees? One out of every three people is a refugee, have lost their home. This organization also has a seminary for pastors in the Middle East who are serving in terribly difficult places like Yemen, like Sudan, like Tunisia, like Egypt, Jordan, Iraq, and Iran. And some of them, quite frankly, have to live beneath the radar to survive. They expect to suffer for their faith, but my the joy in their hearts. Last Monday night, I had one of the most unique opportunities that I've ever had to worship and preach in a church to a group of Muslim refugees. I wish you could have seen the hunger in their eyes. The women with their burqas, the men with despair in their eyes, having lost their home, looking and searching, and the church is reaching out to them, and they're responding. In fact, some are becoming Christ followers, but the church is not coercing. The church is not pushing. The church isn't denigrating Islam. They're just, they're just living out the gospel, and they're ministering to their neighbors who have no home, and it's having an impact. They're cutting through the roof. They're breaking the ceiling. And some of these refugees who were once their enemies are now receiving their care. By the way, they tell me in Beirut that this, more than any other thing, is the convincing evidence of a follower of Jesus, not just bearing fruit, but forgiving your enemies. This is the fruit of a believer, the same power that can cause a Lebanese to love a Syrian. The same power that can cause an Israeli to love a Palestinian is the power that can enable a Christian to love a Muslim, and they're lifting the roof to bring others to Jesus. It's just loving your neighbor like you love you as you love yourself. Back to the story. Jesus' response to this man who's lowered by ropes at this point, I think maybe was a little disappointing. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I think maybe, just maybe at this point, the guys who are on the roof holding the ropes are thinking, uh, Jesus, we appreciate all of that, but it's not forgiveness he needs, it's feet. It, it, it's not mercy, it's mobility. And yet Jesus always sees what we cannot see. There is a condition that is more grave than physical infirmity, and that's spiritual 
paralysis. I've decided because I've seen so many, you can learn to live with a thorn in the flesh, but you cannot persevere with a thorn in your soul. And why would you? Jesus begins the healing with the heart and then the body. Forgiveness. Of course, there are some in the crowd, Pharisees, scribes, who at this point are absolutely beside themselves. It's blasphemy, they say. Who can forgive sins but God? Who does he think he is? And Jesus, ever perceptive, knows their thoughts, knows their hearts. And then he asks them a question. What do you think would be easier? To say to this man, your sins are forgiven? Or stand up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, I say, get up, take your mat, and walk. And he did. (laughs) And the people said, we have never, we've never seen anything like this, not close to this. Now, I want you to see this picture. The religious professionals... The religious authorities had nothing to say to this man's physical or spiritual need. And Jesus spoke to both. And Jesus had no positional authority, but he had the desire, he had the power to heal and forgive. And he has given that power to you and to me. John R. Stott, the great British theologian, said the authority by which the Christian leader leads is not power but love. It's not force but example. It's not coercion. It's gentle persuasion. Leaders have power, but power is safe only in the hands of those who humble themselves to serve. Isn't it wonderful to know you don't have to have an office, you don't have to have a position to live with authority. Last word. It was 17 years ago, about this time, I think it was actually in July, in 2002, we heard about the miracle at Kew Creek. You remember the story? In Somerset, Pennsylvania, a small group of miners, nine to be exact miners, were trapped 240 feet underground in a a water-filled mine shaft for three days. During those three days in that water-filled tomb, the water temperature dipped down beneath 55 degrees Fahrenheit. Hypothermia was taking its toll on them. They decided, however, later they would say early on, that they would live or die as a group. And so what would happen would be this. When one of them got cold, the other eight huddled around them and warmed him. And then another would get cold and the favor would be returned. Said one of the miners, everybody had strong moments. When one man would get down, the others pulled together and we became a community. It's a picture 
of the church. Sometimes you're the guy on the pallet, and sometimes you're the one holding the ropes. And that's what it means to be a neighbor. When Jesus saw the faith of that community, healing and wholeness began spiritually and physically. And that man got up and walked home. But the last detail is one that really gets me. He didn't leave his pallet behind. He carried it with him. Why? Because to mark that pallet is the cross. It was his burden. It became a sign not just of what life had been, but by the mercy and grace of God, it became a sign of what life could be. No longer defined by his condition, now he's defined by his confession. And it started with a small group who loved their neighbor as they loved themselves. And everybody said, never seen anything like this. I want to ask you this morning, whose palate are you willing to carry? Because the way you respond to that question may not only change somebody else's life, It'll change your life. May it be so. In Jesus' name.